Well, if you are interested in hearing more about our local outreach opportunities here at Chap in Chapel Hill or about some international missions opportunities, we are having an interest meeting immediately following this service in the library. So as soon as the service is over, you can make your way over to the library. We'll have representatives from all of our Chapel Hill campus local outreach partners. Um, we'll talk a little bit about what a next step could be for you to engage in local and international missions. So don't forget, immediately following the service, head over to the library, okay? Well, we have the great privilege this morning of welcoming Pastor Brian Loritz here live um, to, yeah, to teach God's word for us. So in addition to being on our teaching team, Pastor Brian leads our multi-ethnic unity efforts at the summit. He also oversees our internship and apprenticeship program, our summit collaborative program with teaching and training. He also has a, um, a plethora of baseball stories that he weaves into every sermon that he gives. Um, but truly, one of my favorite things about Pastor Brian's preaching is that when you hear him, you know that he's been through some stuff, you know? Like he's been through it, and you, you hear it in the way that he speaks, in how he communicates, the Lord has brought him through hard times, and and it's been really, really tough. There's been a lot of darkness, but there's also been a lot of joy that has come from that. Um, we say a lot around here at the Chapel Hill campus that we want to make our big church feel small like, you know it, small like family. So let's give a warm Chapel Hill family welcome to Pastor Brian Loritz. Bibles meet me in 1 Samuel chapter 18 as we continue on kind of our trek through uh, the life of David. It is such a joy to be here with you uh, out here in Chapel Hill. Uh, figured I'd take a bold step of faith and wear my J's out here to try to connect with you. Although please don't take a picture of me wearing them and put me on that site, Preachers and Sneakers. Uh, that's uh, horrific. Yes, that's an actual social media site. Uh, I digress. Uh, anyways, um, you know, our family is relatively new here. Uh, we got here a little over two years ago, and I've been learning the culture and uh, naturally met uh, a lot of people from Chapel Hill and UNC. And, um, but also, uh, when I go out to Blue Ridge, there's a lot of people from NC State uh, who go to our Blue Ridge campus. Absolutely. Uh, don't be offended by this, but I, it was an honest question. I asked NC State people athletically, what are you all good at? And um, literally, they said to me, hope. We're, we're good at we're good at, we're good at, we're good at hope. Anyways, um, also it's a joy, I won't call her out, but my, my wife uh, is here and uh, our middle son, Miles, as well, our youngest son, who's graduating from high school. He's actually serving at the uh, uh, Briar Creek campus. He graduates in December and then we'll be empty nesters. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. We are definitely Definitely looking forward to that. Now, let me just make an abrupt transition. Today, as we know, is uh, September 11th, and uh, we would uh, be remiss to not just pause and acknowledge and seek God's face collectively before we get into the sermon um, about this horrific tragedy that happened many, many years ago. Um, I used to have an assistant uh, whose father actually died on that day uh, in the towers. And one of the things she just shared with me, she was newly married at the time, uh, and she said, that event still reverberates in my life when I show up at my 
at my young kids' soccer games, I find myself getting angry uh, that they never got to know their, their grandfather. And so it's just a reminder that for today, maybe even some of you in this room, it, um, it still reverberates. And we want to we wanna pray for those who are mourning on this day and uh, ask God in his sovereignty to step in. So will you just take some moments and will you pray with me on this occasion? Father, uh, we remember, we lament the events of September 11th, 2001. Uh, those of us who are old enough uh, to remember probably, uh, no doubt, uh, remember exactly where we were when those events happened. So we pray, Lord God, we grieve with those who grieve those who are having a hard time on a day like today, that, Lord, that you would, um, you would meet with them, minister to them in very tangible ways. Lord, every time I pray something like this, it's at the same time me saying, okay, maybe I need to send in a text to a former assistant of mine who's grieving on a day like today. So show us how we can be the body of Christ to people who who are hurting. Lord, it's also a reminder, Lord God, that uh, Ephesians 6 is so true. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our real enemies are not the people who tore those towers down. It's not the nations that they were a part of, Lord God. Um, and so you've actually called us to go into all the nations, to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and to love these people, Lord. So I, I pray that that would be even more so true of we in the body of Christ. Now, Father, as we unfold your text, I'm excited, Lord God, to speak this word into the hearts of the people, but knowing my limitations, I can't change anybody. Uh, God, that's your business. Um, you just call me to be um, that sower who scatters the seed of your word. So I pray, Lord God, that it would take root, uh, that it would produce a great harvest in the lives of, of your people. Lord, at the end of the day, as we're going to be looking at friendship, uh, this isn't just principles on how to be a good friend or how to have friends. Lord God, this is about your providential sovereignty, and Lord, it's going to point us to Jesus Christ. So may those things be known, Father God. But speak to our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. First Samuel chapter 18, again, we've been going through the life of David. Uh, all scripture is profitable. All scripture is useful. Uh, this is what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, but this is one of my favorite sections of the, of the, of the scriptures. If I could just kind of bottle up this passage of scripture and, and just multiply this in my life, I mean, I, I get so inspired every time I read the opening five verses of 1 Samuel 18. So I want to share it with you. Verse 1, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, I love this, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And notice the contrast, Saul, speaking of his actions towards David, took him that day and wouldn't let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. 
Uh, again, our family moved here a couple years ago from California. Uh, they say we're from Northern California, the Bay Area, but if you look at the map, that's actually Central uh, California. N- nonetheless, one of the things that you see in that part of California are these huge, towering redwood trees. I don't know if you've actually seen a redwood. They're, they're a sight to behold. They're a bit of an anomaly. Uh, they, they can stand upwards of 275 feet tall, um, and yet I call them a bit of an anomaly uh, because here are these towering trees that can live for hundreds, if not thousands of years. But if you study them, their roots only go about five to six feet deep in the soil. And so how in the world can something stand so tall, hundreds of feet, for so long with such shallow roots? Well, we know the answer to this. If you've ever seen a redwood, you know redwoods don't grow by themselves. But they grow in these thick groves together. And what happens over time, their roots become intertwined with the roots of other redwood trees so that as they get older, as they mature, uh, they go from kind of individualism into community and friendship with other redwoods. The secret to redwoods, their height and their longevity, is they do not grow in isolation. They grow in community. Now, I want you to fasten your seatbelts because this is the most un-American sermon you will hear. And I tell you it's un-American because we in in, in America grew up in a culture that was founded and it is rife with rampant individualism. We are constantly hearing this message. We can make it on our own. Be true to yourself. And I just want to tell you, pragmatically, in my own experience, when I look at people I admire whose lives are morally tall, tall in integrity, tall in character, over the long haul, a baseline kind of common denominator is they got friends. And by friends, I'm not using it in a technologically cheap way. I ain't talking about who follows you on social media. I'm not talking acquaintances. I'm talking about in the truest, richest, deepest sense of the term, people who know you and walk with you. Conversely, the people I know, and I'll just kind of stick to kind of my profession as being a pastor, a preacher, who, who have had these huge moral implosions, they all have the same thing in common, isolated. Kind of the irony about, about my profession is we can just kind of be around a bunch of people and be lonely all at once. So when I kind of do a post-mortem or an autopsy on these huge moral collapses, it's just uncanny They all have the same thing in common. They lived isolated, withdrawn. Nobody really knew them. Nobody spoke into them. They didn't receive. They were lonely. It's interesting, you know, when we, if if you're new, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Um, 
Um, I, I want to encourage you, um, you know, to, to, to get to know God and to, to read his scriptures. Um, if you read in Genesis, for example, uh, Genesis chapters 1 through 2 is as good as it gets in the Bible until the very end, the last couple of chapters of, of, revolution, of, of Revelation. But, but towards the end, uh, excuse me, towards the beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, uh, it's this perfect scenario. And one of the things we find God doing is God creates something and he high fives himself and is like, that's good. He creates something else and daps himself up again and goes, that's good. One time he goes, that's very good. Like he chest bumps himself. That's, that's very good. And then in this perfect environment, God looks at something in this perfect environment and says, that's not good. It's interesting. Before sin enters into the world, God looks at something and says, that's not good. What is that something? It's the end of a day, and God's peering over the balcony of heaven, and, 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 and he notices Adam is alone. In this perfect environment, God says, that's not good. Hear me. No matter where you may be on the spiritual spectrum, grew up in church, was baptized at an early age, or, or, or this is your first time in church, wouldn't call myself a Christian. No matter where you may be, a longing we all have is the longing for community, for relationships, for friendship. First Samuel 18, 1 through 5, taps into that very felt need we all have. And that longing, according to Genesis, when God looks at a perfect environment and he says, not good, of an individual living alone tells us that our longing for friendship is not a fruit of the fall, but it is a part of what it means to be made in the image of God. God, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, have eternally dwelt in a triad of community. And to be made in the image of God, which we all are, means that I have this longing. And then Genesis chapter 3 happens, sin enters into the world, which is interesting because at the end of Genesis 2, it says of Adam and Eve, they were naked and unashamed. I believe their physical nakedness is indicative of something far deeper than sexual intimacy. I think it's indicative of their vulnerability and transparency. We'll talk about this later on. When a, when, when, when a married couple is naked before each other, here's what they're saying, and this is why sex should be in the covenant of marriage. What they're saying is, I see the best in you, or at my age, I see the worst in you. And I receive you. That's friendship. I see it all. I see the best. I see the worst. And, and, and I'm not turning my back on you. I'm with you. And then what happens, Genesis chapter 3, sin enters into the world. What's the first thing they do? They hide from God. They, they sow fig leaves. They hide from one another, which means this. Sin isn't just personal. It's profoundly social. Sin rips at the fabric of community, which means this. <laughs> Friendship and community is both your deepest longing and your deepest frustration. Friendship and community is both your deepest longing and your deepest frustration. Because that person you're sitting next to is a trip. And so are you. I've heard women say over the course of my years in pastoral ministry, you know, something will happen and a woman will say, oh, I just can't be friends with women anymore. So much drama. And I want to say, as if you're not. But being a pastor, you can't say everything you're thinking. And the same thing with men. 
All of us have drama because sin is drama, which makes friendship our deepest longing and our deepest frustration. L- let me say one more thing as we inch our way to 1 Samuel chapter 18. I think this idea of friendship, it, it particularly hits different in today's cultural milieu. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Hall, who's a relationship friendship expert, he's an academic, he l- recently wrote a piece in the, in the um, Wall Street Journal, and here's what he says. He, he says, you and I live, I love his phrasing, in a culture of interiority. What does he mean? That, that you and I are now living in a culture that is turning more and more inward. And a part of this is because of technology. Uh, we, we have technology, social media. I, I want to be careful. I don't go as far as John Mark Comer says. John Mark Comer actually says social media is a net negative. I won't go that far, although I do see his point. But the, the challenge of social media is, you know, you disagree with me, praise God for the block button. Block, 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 block. And now I create this fantasy world where everybody agrees with everything that I say, which means I form my own kind of echo chamber And when I live in that kind of world, which is a fantasy world, no wonder we have gotten more and more fragile and sensitive and brittle to where we can't receive authentic friendship. Because one of the things the Bible says about authentic friendship is faithful are the wounds of a friend. A friend tells you truth. But because these doggone smartphones and social media, we've crafted this world where everybody pretty much cosigns on what I say. I can't receive truth from other people. So we can go on with technology. Um, the idea of technology, it's such a, it's, it's so interesting because at no other point in world history have we been more globally connected and more isolated at the same time. So, for example, did you know the United Kingdom has just appointed a a few years ago a minister of loneliness? Like, that's a full-time gig. Uh, One of our Surgeon Generals, uh, former Surgeon Generals, diagnosed America recently with a loneliness epidemic. Cigna just released a study that says, hear this, 53% of all Americans, so over half of all Americans, do not experience consistent, in-person, deep social interaction on a daily basis with others. 53%. So that's us. Dr. Sherry Turkle, in her wonderful book, Alone Together, she's a professor at MIT. She says these words. Will you look at it with me? Technology is seductive when what it offers meets our human vulnerabilities. And as it turns out, we are very vulnerable indeed. We are lonely but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Look, I'm an introvert. Which means two things. I freak out over praying with strangers in service. But two, it also means I love social media, especially Twitter. I can kind of drop a bomb and not have a conversation with you. Genius. I think that's what she's saying when she talks about digital connections offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our networked life allows us to hide from each other. Even as we are tethered to each other, we'd rather text than talk. So now we come to our text. 
1 Samuel 18 is all about friendship. And there should be something in you. When this passage was read, no matter how much hurt we have, something in us, no matter where you may be spiritually, no matter where you may be on the question of Jesus, something in you should look at this text and say, man, I want that. I want that. And yet there's so much more happening here. 1 Samuel 18 is at the end of a very long day for David. It kind of begins with David's father, Jesse, just curious about David's brothers and wanting to get a report. So he gives David some food to take to his brothers out on the battlefield, and he wants a report. So here's David. This, he's about 13 or 14, uh, and he takes his food out to his brothers, and he gets out there, and he, he hears of this guy, Goliath, who's insulting God and challenging the people of God. And so David's like, I'll take him on. He then goes and meets the king, Saul, who puts his armor on him. David's like, ah, this ain't working for me. Uh, let me just roll with what I'm used to. He takes a slingshot, five smooth stones, runs out there, kills Goliath, cuts off his head. Saul's like, got to meet with you. And so Saul and the crown prince Jonathan now call David into a meeting. At the end of that meeting, he's going to get a job as head over the king's uh, kind of special armed forces at the age of like 13 or 14. What a day. And he's going to end with a lifelong friend. I mean, what a day. If you've had a better one, I'd love to hear it. So I imagine David just sitting there, you know, holding Goliath's head in his hands, just kind of, you know, listening to, to, to what Saul and Jonathan are talking about. I mean, 13 or 14 years of old is unbelievable. Like he ain't playing Call of Duty. He's actually lived it, man. And so here he is just kind of hanging out. And, and we see this amazing thing on friendship. But, but here's my question. And I just kind of engaged. I'm like, why is this text given to us? Is this text just given to us to give us some nice principles on how to be a good friend and how to receive friendship? I think that's part of it. But I I think there's something far deeper going on. I want to encourage you to read 1 Samuel chapters 18, 19, and 20. They form a unit within a longer unit on the life of David. Brace yourself, though. Fasten your seatbelts. As you read 1 Samuel 18, 19, and 20, uh, there's a lot of heartbreak, a lot of betrayal, a lot of, here's the word, evil happening. Here's David. He's going to be betrayed by Saul numerous times. Saul's going to try to kill him. Uh, David's going to be so frustrated. We'll catch a hint of this in chapter 20. And why is this happening to me? And he's going to have to end up running for his life, living the life of a fugitive. And, and, And it's just evil. It's dark. It's horrific. And notice what God does. Right at the top of this season, God drops a friend in his life, Jonathan. And then notice how chapter 20 ends. Chapter 18, they make a covenant of friendship. Chapter 20, what do they do? They renew their covenant of friendship. The whole dark passage in David's life is bracketed by his friendship with Jonathan. It is as if God is saying, hey, David, you're going to go through some horrific things. And your quiet time ain't going to be enough. I need to drop a friend into your life who's going to share your passion for me, and who's going to help you weather the storm. First thing I want you to understand about friendship is friendships are instruments of God's providence. When we talk about the providence of God, here's what we mean. It's how God works in history. It's how God works in your life. I love what Tony Evans says. Tony Evans says God's providence is the hand of God in the glove of time. God says... David, I'm going to gift you 
with a person who loves me, who's going to walk with you, and they are going to be instruments of my divine grace and providence in your life. Man, when we see people that way, through the lens of God's activity in my life, that's a game changer. Uh, there's a book, I don't know if you've read it, I know many of you are college students, and so you've got your own kind of syllabus shock happening right now, I'm sure, so get to it this summer, but uh, there's a book my wife and I read together this summer, it's called The Happiest Man on Earth, it's an international bestseller uh, written by a guy named uh, Eddie Jacku, he lived to be 101 years of age, he just died, I think last year. Uh, Eddie Jacku, long story short, um, uh, part of it is an evil dark chapter in his own life called Auschwitz, he's a Jew. He endures the horrors of Auschwitz for several years. Um, on his work detail, for example, every day he's got to wear a sign that, that says, pretty much says, if I screw up, shoot me. He watches his mother die, his dad die. He gets shot. He goes through horrific things. Eddie says his first night in Auschwitz, he's getting off the train. He's disoriented. He sees a familiar face, a guy by the name of Curtis, his long-lost friend from back in the day. They hug each other. They embrace one another. And then they make a commitment to, that at the end of every day, they're just going to go on a walk with one another. And they cry and they share their hearts with one another. And they, they let each other in. They grieve with one another. They lament with one another. They encourage one another. They, they strengthen one another. Eddie, Eddie Jacku says, I don't make it through Auschwitz without my friend Kurt. I think that's exactly what's going on. God is saying, David, you're going to go through very hard times. I'm going to gift you with a friend. I want you to hear me. We all need to be Eddie and we all need to be Kurt. You are going to go through hard times in your life. Assume it. In this life, you will have trouble. Life will overwhelm you. you. Some of you will be on an infertility journey. Others of you, loss of loved ones. Maybe even your own kid. Others of you, financial hardship. Others of you, maybe a divorce. Maybe some deep, dark betrayal. And for you to isolate yourself, for you to say, no, no, I don't need people. I can make it on my own. Hear it now means that I am cutting myself off from the providence of God. So I need to be an eddy where... And that's a game changer. That people, that friends are God's gifts to me to help me make it through. But I also need to be a Kurt. I need to view myself as God's gift to others. Ever been praying? The other morning I'm sitting on my back porch. I'm praying through the... Um, Beatitudes, you know, and blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. And then I, then I get to the beatitude, blessed are, the, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I'm thinking about my, my, my friend. We've been doing life together. We've been in a small group together for over 20 years. And I'm praying for him. Man, he's mourning. He just got diagnosed 
with ALS, a horrific way to die. Doctor told him three years. And I'm praying, God, he's mourning. Bless him. Speak to him. Bless him. Encourage him. And God says, that's why you're in his life. So later on that day, as an act of repentance, I bought a plane ticket. I'm going to go down to Orlando. I'm going to spend some time with him. When you see yourself as an instrument of God's providence in the life of others, now I'm not so quick to cut people off. But secondly, we understand that friends are gifts, not the giver. Look at verse 1. I love this phrasing. Jonathan and David, there's a connection there. It says that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. I I, I don't have time to do a deep dive into the Hebrew word. This is the original language of our text, soul. It's nefesh. Pretty much here's what you need to understand about soul. Uh, It's the deepest part of who we are because it is the eternal dimension of who we are. When we die, our souls will go on. Our souls are the eternal dimension of who we are. And what happens, there's a connection that is formed. Yeah, there's affinity here. They're both warriors. They're both leaders. Jonathan can hold his own on a a battlefield. Uh, We we see him just wiping out a whole uh, Philistine garrison, just him and his armor bearer. I, I think there's this thing in which there's a connection here. There's affinity here. But what keeps them connected isn't the warrior stories or the battle stories. They're connected on a spiritual soul level. Here's what we understand about our souls. They're stained by sin, which means friendships are profoundly frustrating because I'm a sinner and you're a sinner and I can't change that in you and you can't change that in me. In fact, they understand that, which is why their friendship on the soul level, they're constantly redirecting the other person to the one who can change them, which is God. 1 Samuel 23, 16, for example, look at it with me. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. It's as if Jonathan is saying, man, my friend is down. I can't change that. I can't fix that. But let me lift up his head and redirect him to the one who can. And if you get nothing else I say, get this about friendship. Your friend is not given to you to satisfy you because they can't. Your friend does not have the capacity to fulfill you at the deepest levels of who you are. Corey my bride of 23 years is not given to me to complete me. Sorry, Jerry Maguire. I'm not given to her to complete her. That's why we have a savior. See, I think a part of our frustration with friendships is we put on the other person the crushing expectations of deity. They're not God. They're gifts from God, but they're not God. Breathe. When I, can, when I understand that, that completely changes the other thing. Now I'm better positioned to enjoy them. I, I'm, I'm, I'm less quick to get annoyed with them. 
Because I've been assuming that, 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 that they can fix me, they can change me, they can fulfill me. And God's like, that's what Jesus is for. They can't do that. And so now when I put them in their proper place and I take them off of this idolatrous mountain of expectations, now I'm better poised to actually enjoy them. But here's our problem. When I approach people fundamentally from the vantage point of you'll complete me, you'll satisfy me, you'll make me happy, you'll bring me joy, I now become a Saul and not a Jonathan. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 2. Verse 2 it says, and Saul took him, took him, took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. You know what Saul's going? Oh, this kid's a warrior. This kid's a beast. He's a five-star prospect. He's going to make my army better. He's going to elevate me to the next level. Uh, the wonders he's going to do. Saul doesn't care anything about David. He doesn't care anything about who he is as a person. He completely sees him through a utilitarian lens. I'm going to use him to better me. And the spirit of Saul exists in so many friendships. When we approach people from this whole vantage point of they're going to do something for me. They're they're going to increase my status. She's going to make me look a certain way. He's going to do something for me. Notice the difference between Saul's and Jonathan's. Will you look at it with me on the screen? Saul's take, Jonathan's give. Saul's control, Jonathan's release. Saul's are envious, Jonathan's are encouraging. Saul's are life-destroying, Jonathan's are life-giving. I just got to ask you, what is your primary disposition when you enter the theater of human relationships? Do you enter as a Saul or do you enter as a Jonathan? One of the passages of scripture that just haunts me as a husband. It's Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then later on it says that one day uh, he's going to present us kind of uh, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I don't know about you. uh, Right now I got a whole lot of spots, a whole lot of wrinkles. It's called sin. But one day I'm going to stand before God spotless, without wrinkle, uh, without any of that stuff. What's going to take me from sin to sinless perfection? It it is the leadership of Jesus Christ in my life and the journey of sanctification. He's always giving, always giving. And as a result of that, I'm, I'm becoming better. That's the example, the illustration Paul uses for the husband's role in the life of his wife, which means this. Husbands, our wives should be able to look through the rearview mirror of their journey with us and say, I am a better woman, not in spite of you, but because of you, because you approached me as a Jonathan. You gave. It's like Christ gives up his life for us. You give, you give, you give, and I'm better because of it. Let me ask you, do people around you say I'm better because of you or in spite of you? There's just this sense of, man, I'm just... I'm just going to step into this, and I'm looking at you, and I want to just position you for success. I want to position you. I'm viewing myself as God dropping me into your life to say, how how can I get you to position where you are laying hold of all that God wants you to lay hold of for your life? I'm just so grateful 
in February, I'm going to preach my pastor's um, retirement ceremony. 40 years. And I'm, I'm jumping on a plane joyfully. Because his whole kind of relationship with me is a Jonathan. He's, he's giving and giving and giving and giving and giving. I find that if I want somebody to respond to me, and i got to be careful with how I say this, it's easier to get people to respond to me when I'm taking the posture of a giver and not a taker. Now, here's the problem. Some of you are in relationship with Saul, so what do I do? You're in relationship with a person who's controlling, who's manipulating, who's using you. What do I do? Do what David did. Run. Hear me, go through your process, Matthew chapter 18, have, car, have hard conversations and sit with people. But when a person persists in taking from you and sucking the life out of you and manipulating you and controlling you, that person is really communicating to you, they're not ready for a big girl, big boy in Christ friendship. And some of you are caught in these codependent relationships and, and Saul is just going to leave you drained and worse. If you're married, this is a whole nother sermon. I'm not saying divorce them, yada, yada, yada. Let's go home on this. Their souls are knit, deepest level of who they are. Notice what happens next. Jonathan makes a covenant. He makes a covenant. Third thing I want to show you about friendship from this text is friendships are demanding. They're, they're just demanding. They make a covenant. What is the covenant? In the Bible, it's a binding agreement. In fact, if you understand covenants in the Bible, uh, th there's always blood associated with covenants. Genesis chapter 17, the Abrahamic covenant, what happens? Uh, God gets some animals. He cuts them in half. He walks between these, uh, these cut animals. There's blood all over the place. The old covenant, when you atone for your sin, you, you, pit out, you, you, you picked out a, an animal without spot or, or blemish, and you had that thing killed. You had it sacrificed. I love being back down south. I couldn't say that in California. Uh, but, but that's what you did to the animal. It's blood all over the temple. For those of us who are in Christ, who are a part of this new covenant, how did we get saved? Not by our works, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, the new covenant. It's a bloody thing where Jesus Christ is sacrificed for us. And we see blood in our text. The Hebrew word for made, it literally means to cut. Now, let me tell you what's going on here. Uh, most of y'all won't get this, but in, in my generation, one of the popular things that we did growing up was uh, we, we would uh, see somebody in the neighborhood we really liked, had an affinity with. And I, I remember being about 12 years old, and there was this kid in the neighborhood. We just enjoyed each other. At some point, we looked at each other and said, let's be blood brothers. Then uh, what we would do is we'd get a sharp object, a really clean, sharp object, like a rusted nail, and um, we'd prick our fingers so there's blood, and we'd press the blood into each other. That's the idea here, blood brothers. By the way, that's not too far from what's happening in the text. Jonathan is saying, man, there's something here. I, I, I want to be intentional here. I, I want to make a commitment to you. It's almost like there's this, there's this treaty that they make. Hey, man, we're ride or die. We're, we're in this for life. I'm for you. I'm for your success. You're not going to fail. Not on my watch. 
There's an intentionality here. In the 1940s, my grandparents were actually in North Carolina. And um, praise God, North Carolina's changed a lot. But in the 1940s, my grandparents were like, we got to get out of here. Jim Crow is something else. So they were a part of what African Americans call the Great Migration. Um, they loaded up all their belongings, and they left North Carolina, and they went to Newark, New Jersey. And they get their massive reset on their life, disoriented, new place, Enter Aunt Hattie. Aunt Hattie comes along and helps them to get their first apartment, helps them to secure work, takes them to church. Every Sunday, they're shoulder to shoulder in church. Here's, here's, here's Aunt Hattie. Every Friday night, uh, they're over Aunt Hattie's house for the, for the weekly pinochle game. They're just kind of enjoying life. Here's what I want you to understand. We call her Aunt Hattie, but we don't share DNA. There, there is such a closeness, such an affinity that she would lay down her life for us like this. We just kind of gave her the familiar, honorific title of Aunt. It's as if Aunt Hattie said, look, not on my watch. I'm not going to let you fail. I'm for you. I want you to lay hold of all that God has for you. I, I'm committed to you. Who's your Aunt Hattie? I'm not talking about your community group. Friendships are demanding. As we finish this sermon, let me, let me just give you three demanding things that friendships got to have straight from our text. If you're not ready to give these things, you're really not ready for friendship. Number one, humility. Here's Jonathan. He's the prince. If anybody should feel threatened in this relationship, it's not Saul, it's Jonathan. Like, you have been anointed to take my job. Like, I should be sabotaging you. What, what does he do? Instead, he takes off his robe, gives him all of his armor, his weapons, his give, give, give. We call that Humility. Isn't it interesting, some of the most isolated, lonely people are some of the most narcissistic, prideful people with a warped sense of loyalty. Like, like, unless you tell me everything I want to hear, I'll just cancel you and cut you off. Humble people, they just, just give. Secondly, there's transparency. I, I think this is symbolized in and him just kind of stripping off his robe. His robe is, is royalty. It's his insignia. And, and here's what I think Jonathan is saying. When he takes off his robe, here's what he's saying. Hey, look, if this, if this friendship is going to work, I, I don't need you relating to me as prince. I, I'm taking off my princely garments because I need you to see the man. The problem with friendships is that I, I think we never get really transparent. We, 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 we keep our robes on. Being figurative, by the way. I know where I am. In this crowd, a lot of you are high achievers. Many of you have gotten to the school of your dreams. There's a little gravitas that comes with going to the school that, that you go to. You're no slouch. There's a lot of achievement involved there. You're 
incredible GPA and achievement, achievement, achievement. But if you want authentic friendship at some point, you got to stop talking about what school you go to and what your major is and, and your GPA and all that. You, you got to kind of come out of that. This is a good word for me as a pastor. I think the reason why so many pastors are lonely is we never come out of our clergy robes. We, we got to come out of that. You have to be able to, to, to get to know me as a, as a man, as an individual. I, I've got faults. I've got failures. Uh, Mrs. Loritz, who's here, please don't amen that. i I got mess. So many successful people are lonely because all they talk about is the sunshine in their lives, how much success they got and where they live and where our kids go to school and, you know, where we're vacationing and what we've got. And you just, you never kind of take that off and you go, here's who I am. Thirdly, not just humility and transparency, there's got to be vulnerability. The Bible says one of the things that Jonathan gives David is his sword, and we know how he gives it to him. He doesn't give David the sword with him holding the handle and the pointy end of the spear just kind of uh, pointed towards David. And he gives it to him the exact opposite with the handle towards David and the tip towards him. It's at that moment, he goes, Man, I'm just, I'm just going to lay myself out there and you can kill me. Part of the reason why you struggle with friendships is very good reasons. You've been burned by gossip. You've been burned by betrayal. You've put yourself out there. People leverage that to their own ability and power. And here's what Satan goes. Satan then tells you, see, you can't trust people. And so you go, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me, uh, fool me once, shame on you. Uh, fool me twice, shame on me. It's a lie from the pit of hell. At some point... You're going to have to be vulnerable enough to share those dark places in your life. Who knows about your porn problem? Who knows about the inappropriate text messages you're sending to a person who's not your spouse? Who knows about the hell that you're going through with your, your wayward child? trying to cover it up because that's some way you think their behavior reflects on you as a person. Me and my close friends, we have a, we have a statement. You know, we, we'll, we'll get on the phone with each other and, you know, after kind of just talking about sports and things like that, hey, man, I, I, I got to shine the light on something. And, and that's code for Here's some stuff I've been dealing with in the dark, and I'm just going to bring it out in the light, and I'm going to give it to you. And at that moment, incredibly vulnerable. If you're not ready for humility, if you're not ready for transparency, if you're not ready for vulnerability, you're not ready for friendship. In John chapter 15, Jesus uses a very interesting word. Look at it with me. Greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for. Here, here it is. His friends. Jesus says, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant doesn't know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends. Like I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus Christ is the greatest friend we could ever have. Talk about humility, Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God 
in the flesh, that's Jesus Christ, leaves the comforts of heaven, takes off his heavenly robes, steps into the robe of humanity and walks among us. Talk about transparency. We see him weeping. We see him in the Garden of Gethsemane hours before the cross, taking Peter, James, and John, his friends, just laying himself bare. The text says he was greatly distressed. Talk about vulnerable. He took the blows we should have taken on the cross. He took them. Now he calls his friends. Here's what this means. When I receive not just Jesus as Savior, but when I receive the friendship of Jesus who daily walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way, when I'm receiving his friendship, what that means is he's satisfying me. I'm satisfied in my friendship with him, which means I'm better positioned to be your friend because I don't need you to satisfy me. I've got a great friend. Now I'm positioned to give because I'm receiving from this great friend. So, Father, we thank you. Thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. We rebuke the lies of the enemy who tells us you don't need people, who wants to take a snapshot on the wound, the betrayal, and say, see, everyone's like that. We reject that messaging. And God, we, we, we receive your providence in our lives. We see people not as nuisances, not as annoyances, but we receive them as gifts. But God, give us discernment. Not everybody can be a Jonathan in our life. We get that. We understand that. We'll be lucky in life to have a handful. God, just as we receive your grace daily in our friendship with Jesus, may we readily dispense grace to others. Give us humility. Give us transparency. Give us vulnerability. Thank you for the friendship of Jesus Christ. What a friend we have in Jesus. Amen.